reading here, turn to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 3. And as you're turning, I failed this morning to make a very important announcement that I want to rectify right now. Today, Carl and Janice are celebrating 65 years of marriage, and I think that warrants a congratulations. <laughs> congratulations to you both. Praise the Lord. Could not be happier for you. I don't know how many years, but I noticed that Russ and Shannon Costello are also celebrating their anniversary today. Praise the Lord. It's a, uh, it's a good time. We have been in a series the last numbers of weeks picking apart these words. Just a series of words describing what it's going to be like in perilous times. And the perilous times are going to be in the last days. Well, scripturally, Paul makes it very clear that we today are living in the last days. Therefore, we can make the deduction that we are also living in perilous times. And so these various descriptions of the perilous times are very appropriate for us today to study. I want to read for you the first few verses. Chapter number 3 in 2 Timothy. This know also, Paul writes, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, high heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. Tonight, we're going to be looking at false accusers. In the perilous times in which we live, it's going to be characterized by false accusers. We'll look at that tonight. I've entitled it, You Shouldn't Have Said That. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness, and thank you for this place. What a privilege it's been, week after week, for us to meet together and share in sweet fellowship and also have your presence. And once again this evening, I would beg you, Lord, would you meet with us? Lord, would you instruct us as we are surrounded in our world today with these very deadly characteristics? Would you help us, we as your believers, help us to be the opposite? Help us to reflect your nature. And for that, we need your help. So meet with us, I pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. False accusers, well, if you check it up in the original language, it's, you, you could read it something like this, diabolos, diabolos. The uh, definition in the Bible dictionary is a traducer, a slanderer. It's, it's one of the names, actually, of Satan himself. Devil, defaming. An evil report and gossip. It's saying something bad about someone else. And because there are times in Scripture where Satan himself is called this, 
we understand part of the nature of Satan is to say bad things about us. He's a false accuser. There's warnings to false accusers. And I found these interesting. In 1 Timothy 3.11, it says, Even so must their wives be grave. This is in a description talking about deacons, the requirements of deacons. Their wives must be grave, not slanderers, which is the same word, diabolos. Sober, faithful in all things. So, so here, Paul is saying, when you're looking for a deacon, that deacon's wife must not be a slanderer or a false accuser. In Psalm 101, verse 5, Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. Even secret slander is a sin. Privily or privately slandering your neighbor. In Proverbs 10, verse 18, He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that uttereth a slander is a fool. Slander identifies someone who is a fool, the Bible says. So here are some warnings to false accusers. First of all, to deacons' wives. Secondly, in Titus 2, 3, the aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers. Same word, diabolos. Not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So to me, it's interesting that, that this, this particular word here, as you're searching for it in the scriptures, is found in these two places. Deacons' wives ought not be slanderers. The aged women ought not be slanderers or false accusers. This particular word, diabolos, so the original Greek word from which we get false accusers, is translated twice false accusers in the scriptures. One time it's translated slanderers. Thirty-three times it's translated devil. I found that enlightening. Most of the times in the scriptures, the word diabolos is used as translated devil. And so false accusers, slanders, basically is saying, don't be devilish. Don't be like the devil. Don't talk like the devil. Don't be a slanderer, a false accuser, like the devil. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, diabolos. And he will flee from you. Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil, Diabolos. And Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So the greatest time, number of times, the word Diabolos is translated, is translated devil. With that in mind, I thought that for me to understand Best what is being conveyed in the end times. They're described as perilous. When we find out that one of the characteristics is false accusers, and this word used, false accusers, most of the time is translated devils, that I would do well to study the times it's used as devils to find out what really is being said. So here's what I learned. I learned about the slanderous ways of the evil one, the devil. 
In 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, the diabolos, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Now, for some reason, I found this interesting. The word walketh here is in the present tense. That means it's a continual tense. This continuing, continuing, continuing. He's continuing to walk about, seeking whom he may devour. I checked that word out. The word devour means to eat up completely. It's what I do to my, to my food. I eat it up completely. That's what the devil wants to do to you. You see, the devil is not content just to hurt you, just to tempt you. The devil wants to completely devour you. If, perchance, he's after you, chasing you, do all he can to devour you, you get saved, which infuriates him, he's not done with you. He's not all of a sudden going to just leave you alone. Oh, I lost that person. No, he's going to do everything possible to devour your spiritual walk with Christ. In Matthew 4, 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The devil always is looking for someone to destroy, and he tempts us to cause us to sin. In Luke 8, 12, Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. The devil prevents the word from taking root. That's why so many times there are distractions. <laughs> we, were, we were talking at the door yesterday, this lady. And I had my Bible out and I was witnessing to her. And about that time, around the corner comes a little dog. Out of nowhere, a dog. And he runs around the corner on this long leash. We don't see the owner. And he walks right up and comes into the house of the, of the lady. It's not their dog. It's, I mean, it's not their house. Trying to distract. The owner came around. Oh, I'm sorry. He pulled the dog away. Distracting us. Sometimes in church service, the devil will pinch a baby. Get them to cry. Or act up or talk. Why? Because the devil is trying to do everything he can to not allow the word of God to take root. The devil uses many different tactics to prevent God's word from being effective. One of his favorite is distraction. You ever been reading the Bible on a particular devotion time? You get distracted, thinking about something else? Thinking about, oh man, I gotta have the oil changed in my car. Oh my goodness. Oh, this is, oh no, I'm gonna be late if I'm not. All of a sudden, you have all these thoughts except for what you're studying at the time. Where do you suppose those thoughts originate? No, the devil cannot read your mind, but the devil can place thoughts in your mind. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth, that they may be saved. In John 8, 44, we learn of the evil one, Ye are of your father, the devil, the diabolos, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So the devil flat out lies. He's a liar. For some reason, we always want to give him the benefit of the doubt. In the garden, they wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. 
Ever since that time, something in man's nature wants to get the devil the benefit of the doubt. Surely he's not flat out lying. I got news for you. He's flat out lying. You cannot trust the devil. He lied to Eve in the garden. He caused Ananias to lie in Acts 5, 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why hast Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? It came from Satan. His goal is to lie to the entire world. Revelation 12, 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. He's a liar. In John 13, 2, And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The devil is a betrayer. He betrays. He acts like our friend, telling us what we want to hear and lining our path with good things. It's amazing how blessed the life of someone following the devil can be. It's amazing. Raises at work, promotions, whew, for a while. But in the end, he always betrays us and sells us out to die. In Ephesians 2, 2, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The devil oppresses. In Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were, listen, oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The word oppress literally means to exercise control over, to rule. In James 2, 6, But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men, excuse me, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? The idea of oppressing here is having a form of control over, like a rich man would over a poor servant. The devil wants to become our ruler, cruelly putting us in a position where we will willingly do his bidding. This does not necessarily describe a demon being cast out, oppressing. It has to do with breaking the power that demon has on the individual, such as by getting saved. The believer never needs to fear the powers of Satan. We are not to focus on the devil. We are to focus on God. Our admonition is summed up in James 4, 6 through 8. And I'm going to give you this, pow this powerful passage. <clears throat> Many years ago, I started hearing teachings on demon possession and demon oppression. And as a young person, that was very intriguing to me. It was very fascinating to me to hear the powers of Satan. Woo! 
Ooh, and I got a little scared as a young person, thinking, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be wallowing in the mud. I don't want to be throwing myself in the fire. I don't want that. Then I learned, then I learned that the, the saved person cannot be possessed, but they told me that he can't be oppressed by the evil one. And now I get a little confused about that. Well, since then, I've learned very simply, <clears throat> what I want in my life is to be so controlled by the Holy Spirit that he leads me wherever I go. The Spirit of God leads me, fills me, comforts me, cheers me, takes the wrong fear away from me, gives me the proper fear of the Lord, gives me a song in the night, the Spirit of God as I yield to him. Well, you see, if I don't do that, the opposite of being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the evil one. Now, now I, don't, I don't necessarily mean that's called that a possession, so to speak, because the Holy Spirit is in there. The demon's not going to come in and possess what the Holy Spirit is indwelling. But, but the spiritual power to whom I give control is the one that's going to control me. And that doesn't come by being kneeling down like some and said, oh, powers of Satan control. No. It comes by simply allowing the flesh to take control. And as I allow my flesh to take control, guess who's really in control? The evil one. So he oppresses. So James 4, 6 and following comes along and says, But he giveth more grace. Hallelujah. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. How many times have we quoted that little phrase, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Resist the devil, and he'll flee. That's such a wonderful, powerful passage, but that's not all it says. I've met so many people who said, Pastor, I did all the resisting I could, and I still can't win over these temptations. I resist and I resist and I resist and I resist and I keep falling. What's the deal? The Bible says resist the devil. He'll flee. He's not fleeing. Well, then let's take a little closer look at this passage. If you'll notice, the passage is much greater than one verse. Because how it starts is we are to submit ourselves before God. There's that humbling ourselves before Him. If we fail to submit ourselves to God, we are not on a foundation to resist the devil because we are doing it in our own flesh. There's no spiritual power. The power, the filling of the Spirit, does not come until we submit ourselves to Him. Our will submitted to His. Then the Spirit of God takes over, and it's no longer our power. It's no longer us. It's no longer us. And our will, willing it away, is His strength. And then there's no contest. Submit ourselves. And then resist. And then notice, draw nigh to God. Allow that experience to draw you closer to God. And then cleanse your hands, live a pure life, live righteously, and purify your hearts. Make sure the thoughts and intents of your heart are where they need to be. The devil's an oppressor. He's also the one who condemns. In 1 Timothy 3, 6, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. In a list of requirements for the pastor, he's not to be a novice. Why? 
lest he fall into condemnation because of pride of the devil. The devil condemns us in and of our sin. He brings back those sins. Remember when you did, remember when you, remember, remember that sin that you did? Remember how you failed God? Remember how disappointed God was in you? Remember that, remember, remember, now wait a minute. These thoughts reminding me of all these sins, I got a problem. I thought that they were under the blood. They are, then why are you allowing them in your mind? We're to bring every thought into captivity. And those thoughts of condemnation are not coming from the one who saved you and forgave you. Those thoughts of condemnation are coming from the one who wants to destroy your spiritual walk and to depress you and discourage you and make you say, it's not worth it anymore, I'm giving up. He condemns. God wants any guilt that we have to draw us to repentance. The devil means it to drown us and destroy us. You see, in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. No condemnation. That means if condemnation is coming your way, you know where it's coming from, and it's not from him. He's a condemner. In 1 Timothy 3, 7, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach, and the snare, the trap of the devil. He snares. He's a trapper. <laughs> he traps his victims. In Luke 21, 34, we find out that he snares those distraught over the cares of life. All weighed down because life's pressures are so great. And take heed to yourselves, Luke 21, 34, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares, for as a snare, a trap, shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth, those distraught over the cares of this life. We are told to cast our cares upon him, for he careth for us. The devil says you need to keep those cares. You have no right to get rid of those cares because you're responsible for those. Condemning, 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 condemning. And then those who are chasing wealth in 1 Timothy 6, 9, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, a trap, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. He snares. I found a highly publicized case of slander, just to give an, uh, an example. In October, a Connecticut jury awarded $965 million compensatory damages to the families of Sandy Hook victims following statements made by a man named Jones that the shootings were a hoax as a part of a plot to seize American guns. His claims caused harassment and death threats to be leveled at the families, causing severe psychological harm. There are three ongoing lawsuits against him as a result of the statements he made, and two of the three cases came to a head this year. In the second case, in November, a Connecticut judge ordered that he must pay $473 million in punitive damages. A third case is pending in Texas, all because he said something that he shouldn't about somebody else. Slander. In 1969, 
United States Senator Barry Goldwater prevailed in a libel lawsuit against Fact Magazine's owner, editor, and publisher after the magazine published an article suggesting that Goldwater was not fit to serve in the office to which he was elected. The courts held that Goldwater met the standard of actual malice. In 2005, actress Kate Hudson won a libel lawsuit against the British edition of the National Enquirer. The publication falsely printed that she had an eating disorder. I spent a lot of time looking at slander and the author of slander, Satan himself. And as I was studying, I said this message is missing something. It just, it's so depressing. And then I realized what was missing. We're not just to focus on the negative. We're supposed to focus on the positive. So what do you want us to do? Ah, I'm glad you asked. In Acts 11:22, then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came, and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and faith, and much people was added unto the church. You see, Barnabas was a man of encouragement. He was an encourager, not a slanderer, but an encourager. He left the disciples wherever he went, encouraged. He was filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit's comforting arms flowed through him. In Acts 27, 21, But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me. <laughs> I told you so. And not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. You see, encouragement shines in times of trials. Here they are, fearing for their very life. And Paul had received a message from the Lord that they were not going to die. He was able to be a source of encouragement in the midst of these horrible trials. In 1 Thessalonians 2.11, As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. Paul's ministry to the churches was one of encouragement and challenging to succeed for Christ. As a father encourages his children and a coach challenges his team, encouragement challenges us to succeed. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, spirit, faith, purity, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Encouragement should be our ministry. You say, well, Pastor, I'm not in the ministry. You should be. Every one of you should be in the ministry. Now, there's not room on the platform for us all to preach at the same time. That's not what I'm talking about. We all need to enter into the ministry of encouraging. Now, some of you know this is true. Some folks have the gift of discouragement. Some of you have met that person. And when you're around them, they just suck out all the life from you. And you walk away thinking, oh, is life worth living? And there's others that you come in downhearted. And when you leave, man, you're bouncing off the ceiling. What just happened? They were an encourager to you. 
May each of us be an encourager to those around us, a ministry. In Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Encouragement softens the heart. It softens the heart. You're not going to soften that heart by browbeating them or taking the Bible and beating them over the head. Ah, but you encourage them. And then lastly, encouragement should characterize this church. This church should have a banner over the top saying, place of encouragement. In Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. One of the definitions of this particular word exhorting is encouraging. Running alongside and encouraging one another. The church should be a place of encouragement. We should be building each other up, not tearing each other down. So in this day in which we live, a perilous day, the last days, there's going to be a lot of false accusers out there. But they shouldn't be in these walls. And as we leave, the people to whom we deal should be encouraged. We should leave encouragement wherever we go. Let us not be accused of being like these false accusers. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love and your goodness. And thank you for leaving us a wonderful example of encourager, encouragement. I pray, Lord, that you might go with us this week. And Lord, help us to exercise this ministry wherever we go. And we'll thank you for it. For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.